So where was Jesus from? Where was Jesus from? Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. When they had gone, that's the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. There he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said from the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard from Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So we pick up where we left off last week here in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, We saw last week the wise men, or magi, having visited Jesus, giving him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I found this study uh, actually yesterday, hot off the press, just released from Barna Group, which is a, uh, a Christian research company. Uh, This was just released on uh, January 18th. There are three slides uh, of um, data here. Very interesting. This this, uh, from October of 22, so uh, just recently, a survey of U.S. adults. Three out of four, 74% say they want to grow spiritually. Additionally, The same proportion, 77%, say they believe in a higher power. Nearly half, 44%, say they are more open to God than they were before the pandemic. Isn't that interesting? The second slide here shows um, overall 80% of Americans say they think there is a spiritual or supernatural dimension to the world. 11% say they don't think such a dimension exists, but it is possible. Only 9% say they do not believe it exists. Now, this is Barna Group, which we've quoted quoted, uh, many times in the last uh, eight years. Um, This is where we got the data for the post-Christian cities. Very large percentage of our nation is considered classified 
post-Christian. This, that was from 2019. This most recently is showing a shift at least towards an openness to spiritual things. This third slide is, is uh, particularly interesting to me. Um, though reli- religious affiliation and church attendance continues to decline, spiritual openness and curiosity are on the rise across every generation. Look at that. Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, and baby boomers, very, very similar. Across every generation, we see an unprecedented desire to grow spiritually, a belief in the spiritual and supernatural dimension, and a belief in God or a higher power. This is our land today. It is very high percentage post-Christian and yet open to spiritual things. If people are open to spiritual things, they believe in a or that a higher power may exist, this study of Matthew is really strategic for us at this time, I believe, because there's only one true God. There's only one way to him. And that is through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I want to say this, though. God knows the difficulty in believing in him. God understands that that's hard. In fact, it's much harder to believe than it is to do. Think think about that. If you do something, it's tangible. You can point to it. I made this, or I did that. But believing without seeing is different. It requires faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That is what the ancients are commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so what is seen was not made out of what was visible. He spoke it into existence. That requires faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's faith. That's required to please God. Romans chapter 4, Paul writes this, If Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about. But he wasn't justified by works. No, he was justified by belief. Abraham believed God that is what credited his account as righteousness. It was the belief. In John chapter 16, when Thomas approaches Jesus, prior to that he says, I will not believe unless I see his hands, unless I touch his side. I will not believe, he says. 
Jesus' response to that after the fact says, because you've seen me, you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. That's you and me. Thomas had the benefit of seeing the tangible. We don't have that. We accept it by faith. We have a special blessing, I believe, in reading that scripture. God has a special blessing for us who choose to believe without seeing. And while seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. Because when you choose to believe, God opens your spiritual eyes to things. And and you come to know him more and more the more you seek him, regardless of the tangible So why am I going through all this? What does this have to do with Matthew chapter 2? Well, as as I've said, and, and, and we'll continue to point to this, God has foreshadowed and foretold the coming of the Messiah throughout history, and these prophecies help us to believe. How do we know Jesus is the Messiah? Well, his family line points to that. We can track his, his genealogy all the way back to Abraham. We saw how he was conceived. How could he be the God-man? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by a, a uh, man's seed, but by the Holy Spirit. He was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Last week, we saw earthly kingmakers The Magi actually coming and anointing him as king. They recognized him. They knew the prophecies. They saw the star. They followed it. All of these, I would suggest to you, uh, these are gifts that God gives to us that help us to believe. I mean, it would be one thing if he just showed up and then we had to pull all the pieces together. No, it was foretold for centuries leading up to. In fact, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that concern the Messiah. Pastor Josh McDowell writes this, the Old Testament is like a jigsaw puzzle, and all the pieces on their own don't create anything, but when they're assembled together, they create a picture, and so the New Testament becomes a decryption key of sorts for unlocking the Old Testament prophecies. Just a handful of prophecies, which we will get to, Born in Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist, enters Jerusalem on a donkey, betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, was silent before his accusers. He died in a manner that the Romans used for criminals, prophesied hundreds of years before there even was such a thing as crucifixion. They pierced his hands and his feet. Those are just a few of the examples of prophecy. In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner calculates the chances of one man fulfilling the prophecies, even to this modern day. And I don't know what the number is, so I'm just put it up here on the screen. It's one to the 17th zero. That's 10 to the 17th power for you mathematicians out there. You say, well, what are the chances of that? There's no chance. There's no chance. He gives a physical illustration. He says, if you were to take dollar uh, coins, one dollar silver coins, and stack them 
across the state of Texas, you would have a stack of coins the size of Texas two feet high. What's the probability? If you were to mark one of those coins across the state of Texas two feet high and then jumble them all up, blindfold someone and say, go find the one, that's the probability. That's amazing. That means there's no probability. Only God. Prophecy is important. Prophecy points to Jesus. So with that backdrop, um, what we're going to see today is, I believe, really incredible because if you ask someone where they're from, you would typically not get multiple answers. Michael, for example, where are you from? Wisconsin, okay. Mike, where are you from? Nina, okay. Brian, where are you from? Greenville, okay. This is one answer. Now, if you were to ask me, I would say, well, I was born in Mobile, Alabama. I was raised in Springfield, Missouri because I moved there in, when I was two. So I have to lay claim to Alabama because we make championships there. <clears throat> I don't want to leave that out. It's been good to be from Alabama for the last 15 years. But for a king, there would only be one answer because he would be born into a kingdom. He would eventually reign on the throne of that kingdom it would be from one place, but not Jesus. In fact, his prophecies include four different places, and each one of them is fulfilled here in this first chapter, the second chapter, pardon me, of Matthew. So first is Bethlehem. And we're going to go back to, to verse 1 to see that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. We'll get a better understanding of why that is here in just a few minutes. When he called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is a direct quote from the book of Micah. Micah is one of the books of prophecy. Um, in the Old Testament, you have uh, several categories of books, the historical books, the, the literature or, or um, uh, poetry uh, books like Psalms, Proverbs, uh, and then you have the prophet books. There are two categories of prophets. We call them the major prophets and the minor prophets. That does not speak to position or rank. It speaks to the length of the book. So Micah is one of the minor prophets. He was a prophet who, who prophesied judgment on the land of Israel. And they were directed against false prophets, false rulers, false teachers. For example, in Micah chapter 2, we see, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil in their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because 
It is their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I'm planning disaster on these people. In other words, he looks at the leaders of the day who are taking lands and fields and homes, doing what perhaps we would see even today in a modern-day dictatorship. It's not uncommon still today. God says, I'm going to judge you. In chapter 3, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. So he's talking to the leaders of his people. Should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, you tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones into pieces, chop them up like meat for a pan, like flesh for the pot. You want to know what God thinks about mistreatment of his children? That's what he thinks. So if you're going through a trial, if you're being mistreated, if, if, if you're being treated unfairly at work or at home, be, be assured God sees every decision made. It breaks his heart. When he sees his children treated unfairly, treated unjustly, it's as if you're being completely torn apart and cooked, boiled in a pot. What's he going to do about it? Starting in verse 9, he begins to declare judgment. Verse 12 says, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. In other words, you unjust and corrupt leadership, I'm going to wipe you out. And then we get into chapter 4, and he moves into a futuristic prophetical statement where there will be a true teacher, a true leader who will rule with goodness and justice. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathat, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. It is a foreshadowing, a prophetical statement about the Messiah who will be born in Bethlehem, and he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So here you have this eternal king, the son of God, who is coming, the second person of the Trinity, God, the Father, Jesus, the Son. He will be born in this little place called Bethlehem, very, very little among thousands of Judean cities and villages, so unlike an earthly king, but so perfect for a humble servant king who gives up his rights as God to become a man. That's Bethlehem. There's a second location here in Matthew chapter 2. It's Egypt. Verse 13, when they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod and so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. 
It's another example of, um, of something that is in Matthew that is not found in the other Gospels. Uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, Mark and John do not have anything on the Christmas story. Uh, Luke jumps from his, his dedication in the temple directly to his childhood, skips over this entire part. This is just found in Matthew. We don't know exactly where, Egypt, where in Egypt they traveled to or landed. We don't know how long they stayed. We saw last week that uh, the Magi were not at the manger, and we speculate. Did anybody throw away their, uh, their wise men out of their nativity? This, you didn't even box it up. I just took it to the garbage. Um, found this interesting historical note. At this time in history, Egypt was a natural asylum for Jews, especially during the Maccabean Revolt. Now, last week I mentioned that there were four world powers that the Magi uh, were a prominent part of, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and to some degree the Roman Empire. Up to this point, or at this point in history, uh, we know that the, the Roman Empire is ruling Israel. Um, but prior to this, sometime in between the Old and New Testament, the Greek Empire ruled Israel. During that period of time, uh, in fact, between the years 110 B.C. and 37 B.C., uh, there was a revolt, a revolution led by a Jewish family called the Maccabees. Uh, you may uh, be familiar with the book of Maccabee. Uh, it is, uh, it is a, a specific time in history. They ruled for a period of time um, and fought originally against the Greeks. Prior to that period, Alexander the Great had set up a city in Egypt called Alexandria, named after himself, so when he conquered Egypt, he set up this city and he allowed the Jews to come and uh, see that city as a place of refuge. So they could go there, they could live, they could live safely. Uh, in fact, this is where most historians believe that the Qumran community, which is responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, lived in this area in Alexandria. So there continued to actually be an exodus of, the, of Jewish people leaving Israel um, even uh, beyond that period of time. Uh, and we, as we know, King Herod the Great was a tyrant, and so there would have been continued reason for them to flee that area. They could go to Egypt in exile. It was a place of safety. It was a place of security. Now think about this, though. The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and says, get up and get out. This is right on the heels of getting these gifts. That is not a, it's not a stretch to, to connect the dots that there was the finances that they would have needed to leave their homeland and go to exile in Egypt, they would have been able to purchase things. They would have been able to pay for the journey. Uh, he would have had to find a new job. Again, we don't know how long he was there, but for some period of time, he would have had to work. This would have closed the gap financially for this little family to travel to Egypt. I think that's pretty cool. Why did they go to Egypt? 
You might say, well, to protect them from Herod. And that certainly is what it says. But couldn't God have done that while they stayed in Israel? Certainly. I would submit to you that it's to fulfill another prophecy. You see, there's more than 300 prophecies and the probability of fulfilling the prophecy, all the prophecies in one man is improbable. And so it's as if God is continuing to stack the deck in our favor so that we have more and more reasons to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Here's the prophecy. It's found in Hosea chapter 11. And incidentally, all of these prophecies um, correlate to the Messiah. Um, Hosea is another one of the minor prophets. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. If you're familiar with this, this book, it's a sad story. It's a really a horrific story of a man who married his dream girl only to find out that she was uh, adulterous and could not stay out of other men's beds until she ultimately became a prostitute. Heartbroken, devastated, but still very much in love with her, he ultimately goes and buys her back out of prostitution. Um, the parallel is this. Um, just like his wife was an adulterous harlot prostitute, Hosea looks at Israel as the same. He says to them, you have been disobedient. You have been unfaithful. You have been sinful. Essentially, Israel, God's very own people, were spiritual prostitutes. Just as Hosea's love reached out and bought back his wife, so God reaches out to his people and buys them back. How? Just like we are held captive to our sin and our rebellion, the only thing, the only price that could be paid for our freedom is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a tragic story, but it gives us a glimpse, and who better to to be able to tell that story than a man who lived it out and who felt the same heartache that God feels about his people. There's a third location, Ramah, verse 16. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, 
weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Um, I, I don't know if this is part of your Bible study. Um, I'm a kind of a process guy. I like to just start and move through to completion. And my wife, on the other hand, is more of a roulette type. So she opens God's word and God speaks to her wherever she lands on that particular day. It's really amazing. Uh, the word of God is alive and active. Um, but, you know, if you're, if, if you're not, uh, if this isn't something that you do where you would take this particular passage from Jeremiah and jump to Jeremiah chapter, thir- chapter 31 and then dig a little bit and do some historical study, you may find that you just kind of blow through this. Uh, another th- it's just another benefit to um, expository preaching. If I've got 45 minutes on a particular passage, then I'm going to uh, dig as deep as I can to make it a valuable use of your time. Um, the word for furious in the Greek is thumo, T-H-U-M-O. It's a very strong word, and it means violent rage. But at the same time, it is a passive tense. And what I mean by that is this violent rage that Herod flew into was an uncontrolled rage. He had no control over it, in other words, is what the meaning of that, what, why it means passive. He, he just was beside himself in anger. And, and the reason I bring that up is um, I believe it to have been spiritually infused, a demonically empowered rage where he was out of control of his decision-making because he was controlled by a demonic spirit. And if you think about what's actually going on here, it makes sense. The Messiah has come, and he is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Whatever he can do, he will do, even by taking control of King Herod to try to kill any and every child. Um, that's what's happening here. Herod's orders are to massacre a future generation. I want you to think about that. Every baby boy in the area is to be put to death. Notice it says, in Bethlehem and its vicinity. Bethlehem is five miles from Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? Soldiers literally going house to house to house. Mothers clutching their children, running, trying to escape, only to be tackled, only to be overtaken. The baby wrenched from their arms and a spear stabbed through its chest. Can you imagine that? That's what's happening here. Notice it says not only Bethlehem, but all the surrounding cities. So it also says two years old and under. Why is that? Well, um, there are some who believe that once a child 
goes into their 13th month, since they're in their second year, they're considered two years old. Some speculate that just to hedge his bets, just in case the Magi were, you know, a little off in their calculation, or just to make sure he got the child, he started up here and worked himself down. Now, something really crazy that I had never considered until studying this is is this. Herod believed this was the Messiah. Or else he wouldn't have done this. If he didn't believe that this was the king, if he didn't believe, and he was an Edomite, so he would have, he would have been raised in this area, he would have heard the prophecies, he sought out the prophets, the, the teachers of the law, he wanted to know what was going on. That leads to me to, to, to believe he actually believed this was true. And he put every baby boy two years old and under, to death. Just goes to show you that wicked leaders have always been around. As for the prophecy, it's from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. This is what the Lord says. A a voice is heard from Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 16, though, says, this is what the Lord says, stop crying. Isn't that interesting? For your work is about to be rewarded. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets. He's the second longest of the prophecy books. He is known as the weeping prophet because his book is filled with grief over the fall and failure of of Israel. So why Rama? Where is Rama? Rama is a, is approximately 5 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, Bethlehem is 5 miles south. It's not really a city but a village. And in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, after King Solomon, so you had Saul, David, Solomon, after King Solomon, his son um, was the king uh, over the land when the two uh, kingdoms were split, the north and the south kingdom. You can find uh, Rama as a border city of the two kingdoms. You can find that in 1 Kings chapter 15. When Israel is finally defeated and the children of Israel taken captive, Rama was the deportation town. This is where they converge, and this is where they took them into captivity. It was also a place where, as a border city, it was one of the few, if not the only city, that was associated with both the north and the south. Because it was the deportation city, it is also uh, all, always associated pardon me, with weeping because it was at Ramah where the mothers saw their children taken into captivity. Um, Now, it also says Rachel. Why is that important? Um, What Jeremiah is doing is painting a picture. Uh, Israel, uh, Jacob, Israel. Jacob was renamed Israel. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel, his 12 sons. This is is how it goes, goes back in history Um, Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob. 
He, she was the one he really loved. She had two sons. The first is Joseph. You're familiar with Joseph's story, the coat of many colors. He is sold into slavery, into, uh, into Egypt. Uh, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They are associated with the northern kingdoms as they come over um, uh, through the exodus into the promised land. Each of the tribes has their own territory. Um, Ephraim and Manasseh are in the north, and the northern kingdom is often called Ephraim. So given that, and Ephraim is the son of Joseph, who is the son of Rachel, Rachel is the mother, then, of the northern kingdom. Rachel had another son. His name was Benjamin. Benjamin is associated with the southern kingdom. And so Rachel is the mother of both the southern and the northern, southern and northern kingdoms. Rama sits in the middle. It is the deportation city. Um, that's the backstory behind it. She's weeping because she sees both sides of her family taken into captivity. But no sooner does Jeremiah present this picture of Rachel in Rama weeping, and he comes right behind it and says, Stop, because there is a Messiah coming. We, too, are held captive by our sin. What breaks that captivity and sets us free? The blood of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. There's a final location, Nazareth. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. As a side note, Josephus, the um, Jewish historian, writes this of Herod's death. He died of ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, convulsions, constant convulsions, foul breath, no shocker there, and neither physicians nor warm baths would lead to a recovery. So that's how he died. I would say that's a fitting death for a man like Herod. Uh, something interesting as we bring this to a close, the worship team can come. The statement, he shall be called a Nazarene, appears nowhere in the Old Testament. It's not in there. Not even once. And yet he says, spoken by the prophets, plural. You might say, well, well now wait a second. Why would he say according to the prophets, if it's not in the Old Testament? Well, um, I would lead you back to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, 
that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Um, God said it. I believe it. And I'm just going to move on from there. Um, This is not the only example in the New Testament of a reference to uh, prophets that are not found in the Old Testament. For example, in, in Jude, it's a single chapter book, verse 14, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. Enoch is credited with saying that, but he's not credited with saying anything in the Old Testament. But because Jude said it, he said it. How do we know that? Because Jude was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote the scripture. And notice Matthew doesn't really, he doesn't try to explain it. And so that would lead us to believe that this was common knowledge. Everybody knew that the Messiah was going to come from Nazareth. It wasn't something that was argued More importantly, I would point to this. It it points to the humility of Jesus. In John chapter 1, when invited to meet Jesus from Philip, Nathanael says this, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nazareth was a place that was so despised that Nazareth or Nazarene would be synonymous with someone who was hated and despised. In fact, when somebody were to say, oh, you Nazarene, that would be a major, major statement of disdain. But that is how our Lord came into the world. He was in the world. But though The world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who would believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Nazareth is actually very important. We still live in that same world. And based on the most recent study, there's a world out there that's more open than it has been in a long time to spiritual things. The world is looking, and there's really, there is only one answer. If you look at this passage again, Philip found Nathaniel and he told him, we found the Messiah. In, in other words, he's, I, I found the Messiah. I found Jesus. I found freedom. I found purpose. I found peace. I found the answer. But Nathaniel didn't believe it at first, did he? Why? Because it's hard to believe. It's hard to take somebody at their word, especially in the unseen. But look at Philip's response. 
He says, just come and see. I mean, you check it out. I found it. Why don't you just come and see for yourself? Test me out on this. I believe it to be genuine. I believe it to be real. He's changed my life. This can change your life. You see, so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem. He moved to Egypt, and then he lived in the land of Ramah. Four distinct prophecies fulfilled. It's a really amazing story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, God, I thank you that you foretold your plan. This was not a secret. We get impatient sometimes looking for answers. But you don't fault us for that either. And so God, I pray right now that we would have a, a renewed confidence as we studied this book and that we would have a renewed sense of urgency that we'd have a renewed excitement as we, as we hear the people are open to the things of the Lord. They're open. They want to know if there's a God, I want to know that it's real. I'm interested in finding out for myself. Just come and see. Lord, would you help us? Help us to see the people around us that are seeking because we do have the answer the answer is you. Thank you for not hiding it, but foretelling it and then fulfilling it. to just take a take a moment this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed I'd just like to invite you to express to the Lord where you are with him For some of you, you, where you are with the Lord is a great place. And your expression should be gratitude, praise, and worship. But unless I miss my guests, especially in a room this size, all the different backgrounds. all the different personal history. For some of you, it might be doubt. It may be on the other end of that. 
God, if you're really real, then why did you let whatever? In this chapter, we see some horrific things that date back hundreds of years prior to this into captivity. And in the moment, a just a horrific, torturous scene. I don't know what you've gone through in your life, but you know, adulthood, getting to adulthood can be pretty hard. Let me just tell you this God is not afraid of your questions. I believe he just wants honesty. Where are you at with the Lord? What have you done with Jesus? The truth is, he loves you so much that he sent his son into this world to pay the penalty, the cost of our captivity. And if he didn't give up his very best, still waiting to invite you into his family, to all of those who would believe in his name he gave the right to become children of God. Let's stand together. God, I thank you that you have big shoulders, broad shoulders. You're not afraid of our questions. You don't fear our doubts. The invitation continues to be just come and see. Just taste and see that I'm good. You don't have to get yourself cleaned up. You don't have to get yourself perfect to come to the Lord. In fact, you can't do it. He makes it. He makes you perfect. You can't make yourself perfect. begins with a choice.